Hi, I'm Zara Kazema. I'm one of the behind-the-scenes folks who helps bring this podcast to life. In a world facing climate challenges like wildfires, Canada's National Observer filters out the disinformation and brings you what you need to understand what's happening. Our coverage brings you to the front line of climate action through the voices of scientists, activists, and communities who are fighting for a sustainable future. But we can't do it alone. To continue our vital work, we need your help. Visit nationalobserver.com today to subscribe or donate what you can. You not only gain access to in-depth analysis, exclusive interviews, and groundbreaking investigations, but your support also helps us shape a sustainable future for Canada and the world. Welcome to Hot Politics. My name is David Mackay. I'm the Deputy Managing Editor of Canada's National Observer and the host of this podcast about the intersection of the climate emergency and politics. Season one is over and it's time for some well-deserved R&R. During the summer, you can catch up on episodes you missed or want to hear again. One issue that hasn't gone away is Ontario Premier Doug Ford's controversial decision to open up part of the environmentally protected lands called the Greenbelt for development. As protests over his decision get louder, Ford threw gas on the flames when he dismissed the Greenbelt as a chaotic mess created by a Liberal government. Got a bunch of staffers in a room with a bunch of crayons and highlighters and randomly just went on a map. Just a big scam. They literally put a dartboard and they just start throwing darts wherever is convenient with them. There was no study, no rhyme, no reason. That's not how staffers in the room describe the process of choosing Greenbelt land. Victor Doyle has been an urban planner for 30 years, most of them in the Ontario Department of Municipal Affairs. He's been in the line of fire before. In 2017, he was disciplined and demoted for speaking out against the development industry attack against government policies on housing. He fought back and had the demotion overturned. He's retired now, but he's still passionate about the work he did in creating the Greenbelt. Victor Doyle, welcome to Hot Politics. Thanks, David. Pleasure to be here. Nice to have you. So what did you think when you heard Premier Ford describe the creation of the Greenbelt as staffers with crayons and highlighters randomly going onto a map and throwing darts into a dartboard? What did you think of that? Uh, mixed emotions. None of them good. I was shocked disappointed, outraged, and then angry, I think. Oh, boy, that's a lot. <laughs> Dig into that a little bit. Well, when I, I looked at the meaning of the word scam in the, the dictionary, and Miriam said it's defined as a dishonest or illegal plan or activity. And so immediately I thought, well, the premier has just disparaged the reputations and efforts of untold numbers of professionals, certainly citizens, many, many politicians at all levels of government, all sorts of civil society advocates. I just was beyond belief that he could be so irresponsible, disparaging all the work and efforts that had gone into the Green Belt. Really what it showed me was that the the government is, is literally ignorant or certainly ill-informed if they think the Green Belt was a scam or that removing land from the Green Belt in any way, shape, or form is necessary to accommodate our housing needs. 
Now, I assume that the process that the Premier was talking about was a little more structured and thoughtful. Can you explain how it was done and who was in the room? It involves the top scientists in a whole bunch of disciplines. You know, agricultural land, hydrology in terms of our rivers, streams, and lakes, terrestrial biology and ecology with respect to our woodlands and wildlife and endangered species. And all these people inputted into the process along with academia, all sorts of civil society organizations who had vast expertise, including our medical officers of health, and uh, all that information and data building on decades of work and research was compiled and woven into a really strategic effort to create the green belt and it was initially supported by an advisory multi-sector advisory task force that went out and consulted widely on what a green belt might prioritize it looked like at a general level and then once we created the draft green belt plan again that was subject to widespread consultation and it included thousands of written submissions, not only by individuals, but organizations, municipalities, et cetera. We held dozens of individual meetings with municipal leaders, conservation authorities, agricultural groups like the Federation of Agriculture. It was really a collective effort built on the best available science, information, data, professional judgment. So it's really offensive for the premier to call this whole thing a scam. So what was it about the areas you chose that are so important environmentally? So it goes back to the process of creating it, not me personally, but the Ministry of Agriculture led the most in-depth analysis of agriculture, agricultural land and capability in, in the history of Ontario. They looked at soil, they looked at climate, they looked at uh, you know how productive the land was, how much investment had been made in drainage and farm buildings and all that. They looked at the whole supportive uh, food sector that processes our food and where all the big service industries were. And you know what? This is all the best farmland in all of Canada, literally. We have 50% of Canada's class one soils within a two hour drive of Toronto. So they all warranted protection from an agricultural perspective. And now we've got the Great Lakes. They hold a fifth of all the world's surface fresh water. We're blessed in Ontario to have this resource and we need to manage it. We've mapped it all and you can see where these key concentrations of these river valleys and wetlands and forests were, which is where all unplanted animals thrive. What do you think of the Premier's argument that the that the lands chosen are not necessarily environmentally sensitive. He's been known to say farmland is just a field full of weeds. Either he's just being contentious or he simply does not understand the, the nature of what's going on. And they just were proposing to allow three new residential lots to be created off every farm in Ontario as part of their ongoing push for housing. And all the farm groups, including the commodity groups, just pushed back in a concerted way, and they backed off that, thankfully. And one of the quotes I saw was, they don't have a clue, i.e. the government, in terms of agriculture in particular, but also environmental protection and how environment and economy go hand in hand. We looked at future growth. We're, we're supposed to grow by 5 million people over the next 30 or 40 years, uh, just in southern Ontario. 
And so we left vast, vast tracts of land out of the green belt to be able to accommodate that growth. And there's still huge amounts of land outside the green belt. There's not any justification for removing even one acre. Well, certainly there's a lot to keep an eye on. This issue is far from over. And I thank you very much, Victor Doyle, for joining us to talk about this. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Victor Doyle, a former urban planner in the Ontario government. As you'll hear in the podcast, Fighting for Green, this protected area is not a political creation, but the creation of both liberal and conservative governments. Welcome to Episode 9, Fighting for Green. Today we're looking at the Green Belt controversy in the country's largest province. Ontario Premier Doug Ford wants more housing built in Ontario, in particular in the larger area in a semicircle outside Toronto. No one thinks that's a bad idea, but as in any plan, the devil is in the details. In November of 2022, Premier Ford announced he would accomplish his new housing push by opening up 3,000 hectares, or more than 7,000 acres, of a protected area called the Greenbelt. We are going to make sure we get housing built. The problem? The housing is going to be built in an environmentally protected area called the Greenbelt. The Premier argued it was necessary to build on this environmentally protected land because urban areas had run out of land to build housing. There was skepticism. Many saw the announcement as fulfilling a backroom promise the Premier made to developers during the 2018 provincial election. The promise was caught on video. We will open up the Greenbelt, not, not all of it. We're going to open a big chunk of it up, and we're going to start building and making it more affordable and putting more houses out there. And the, 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 the demand for single-dwelling homes is huge, but no one can afford them. So we need to start building affordable housing. I've already talked to some of the biggest developers in this country. And again, I wish I could say it's my idea, but it was their idea as well. Give us property, we'll build, and we'll drive the cost down. That's my plan for affordable housing. There was shock. There was outrage when the video became public. Doug Ford backtracked, and quickly. Unequivocally, we won't touch the green belt. Uh, unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear, people don't want me touching the green belt. Skip ahead. Now it was 2022. Things had changed. We have a housing crisis today that we didn't have four years ago. We are going to make sure we get housing built. In the middle of a climate crisis, Doug Ford thinks it's acceptable to allow agricultural land forests to be cleared, waterways disrupted, to create housing projects. He's stepping on the legacies of previous premiers, going all the way back to Bill Davis, who started the ball rolling by protecting the Niagara Escarpment in the 1970s. In fact, the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario has protected more land from development and resource extraction than any other party in the whole country. How did it happen? Listen to this. 
The before days for the Greenbelt were really quite active. There was a lot of brawling subdivisions appearing everywhere. And I was with a group at that time called Environmental Defense Canada. We tried to find them at the Ontario Municipal Board or OMB to stop them. We lost every single one because the rules were in place that would favor the developer. We would lose over and over and over again. There was one really, really big development north of Toronto, and it became a lightning rod for the Oak Ridges Marine Protection. On a Thursday afternoon, we could fill the town hall at Richmond Hill with 2,000 people that didn't want that development. Mike Harris, the premier at the time, recognized that if this battle for the moraine is going to be lost, that his re-election chances were becoming quite low. Premier Mike Harris says, you know what, we're going to protect it unilaterally. So he did that, set the boundaries, and the moraine protection was born. So all that space there was now off developers' radar. They couldn't develop anymore. However, in other places, there was continued this huge pressure to build subdivision. In early 2002, the Liberal Party was led by Dalton McGuinty, and he understood that we needed to do something even grander in scale than the Oak Ridge's Marine Plan. Because, again, fighting all these dozens of individual subdivisions and eventually losing virtually all of them wasn't the right tactic to protect valuable agricultural land and important natural areas. So in the 2003 election platform, McGuinty and the Liberal Party, we want to put in a green belt. Premier McKinty instructed his staff to start thinking about what does the Greenbelt actually look like? Where is the boundary? What should be included? Would there be any exemptions? That's a really big, important process. And then in 2004, they launched a Greenbelt Advisory Council to help advise the minister on what this Greenbelt should look like. And then in 2005, they proposed the Greenbelt Act. In 2005, the Greenbelt was declared as a policy. It included almost 2 million acres of protected space. It tied it together with the Oak Ridges Moraine Conservation Plan. And it also tied it in with the Niagara Scarpin Plan, which had been protected since the Bill Davis years. The politics at the time were bizarre. So remember, this is McGinty just got elected for the first mandate. It's 2005. And the NDP was actually split when the Greenbelt Act came to the vote in the legislature. The response by progressive conservatives. They were led by a now disgraced mayor of Toronto, John Tory. He had won the leadership a year or two before. And party critic for the file, Tim Huda. He had sent people dressed up as chipmunks and other wildlife protest the announcement of the Greenbelt. And I thought at the time, that's kind of weird. Wouldn't chipmunks and other wildlife kind of like the Greenbelt more than paved over subdivision? And in fact, it was one of the first, if not only time that I can recollect, and I've done a bit of research on this, that the Progressive Conservative Party voted against large-scale conservation in the province. And that was at the time when no other party in the history of the country, not just Ontario, had protected more land than the Ontario Progressive Conservatives. They created the Ontario Park System early in the 20th century. They put together the first green plan, the Niagara's Carbon Protection Plan under Bill Davis. Mike Harris put the Moraine Plan in. Mike Harris also doubled the Ontario Park system. It was now time to execute the plan, which meant that the various municipalities in their official plans had to basically take those lands off the map. But the Liberals also copied something that the Tories did when they protected the Oak Ridge Moraine. They established the Greenbelt Foundation, and they gave it $25 million. And the theory was, let's take this money outside political influence 
and outside bureaucratic influence to really help make this green belt work, to make sure that there is enough attention to it, to be a watchdog for municipalities that wouldn't put these things in their official plans, to really make it shine and become an authentic piece of important conservation history in the country and the province. And they didn't really give us any guidance as how to spend it. They basically said, here, you guys lead. So we were in the early days. We were sort of thinking through how we use that money to ensure that the landscape called the Greenbelt is more than just a line on the map. We thought, okay, why don't we make sure that the Greenbelt becomes as iconic as Algonquin Park? No one's going to touch Algonquin Park, take it away and pave it over. And so we set out to create a whole brand around the Greenbelt. We engaged Bruce Mao, who was a celebrity designer at that time, asked him to create a logo and a brand for us. And we really set out to always speak about the Greenbelt in a positive and enlightened way. And we always try to express to Ontarians what the value of this Greenbelt is, not just the value of maintaining farmland, not just the value of maintaining natural spaces, sort of the, the typical greeny things that you point out. But we actually hired really smart economists and we said to them, listen, can you tell us what the economic output of this thing is? Because a lot of land is working land in agriculture. The Holland Marsh, you see it, you drive through it on the 400. But when you actually look at what the Holland Marsh does, it's absolutely stunning. It produces four pounds of carrots for every Canadian. Salary, onion, the Niagara region, really well known as a world award-winning winery region. Now that's all protected. And we did a whole bunch of branding things. So when, for example, if you drive around in Southern Ontario, you will see probably 2,000 signs entering the Greenbelt. You actually see where it starts. And when you go into it, drive into it, you see where it is. We put those on highways, on regional roads, city roads, and always the same brand. The second thing we did is we said, okay, there are people living here on the Greenbelt, people that earn a living there, that raise their families. Not all of them were supportive of the Greenbelt. We actually got our boots dirty. We drove around, we spoke to people that were in the Greenbelt, and they almost uniformly said, allow us to earn a decent living. An entirely reasonable request. So we focused on the food production, the local food agenda, trying to get supermarkets, food service companies to buy more local Greenbelt grown foods. We doubled the farmers markets and we branded them as Greenbelt farmers markets, again, focusing on that brand for the Greenbelt. So we completely transformed the agricultural community into supporters of the Greenbelt. What the Greenbelt actually does is give farmers the certainty that that agricultural infrastructure is maintained and it doesn't move. So by the time I left in 2017, we now had the most popular environmental initiative in the Greenbelt. We also found that people actually use it, participating in the agritourism pieces, you know, the pick-your-owns, the mazes, and so on. My name is Burkhard Mausberg. I was the founding president of the Greenbelt Foundation. And this is a bit of history on the early days of Ontario's Greenbelt. Edward McDonnell is the current chief executive officer of the Greenbelt Foundation and the Greenbelt Fund. Welcome to Hot Politics. Thanks, David. Nice to be here. Some people might think of the Green Belt as forests and parks isolated from people, and I'm sort of guessing that I'm wrong. Am I? Not entirely wrong. The Green Belt certainly includes forests and parks, but it also includes hundreds of thousands of acres of protected farmland, the headwaters of all the major river and other water systems that flow into Lake Ontario, at least in this part of the province, from Niagara in the west and Durham in the east. It's really important from a biodiversity and natural systems perspective, that's for sure. It has amazing recreational trails and routes, including the Bruce Trail. So it's a lot of different things. 
Let's talk a little bit about your organization. What does the Green Belt Foundation do? We are an independent charity, but the majority of our funds are received from the province of Ontario. And what we've been really commissioned to do is to get the most out of the Green Belt for Ontario, whether that's agriculture, water resource systems, recreation, sustainability, and increasingly climate. So we do that through investments in communities, evidence-based research and policy, and communications and engagement. One of the reasons Ontario's Green Belt has been so successful is because it's had a steward through the foundation since its inception. So that's really the goal, is to get the most out of Ontario's Green Belt. How do you measure the success of your work? And one of the amazing things the Green Belt does is support all species, but particularly species at risk, and supports natural systems that are critical. If you think about the immense amount of fresh water we have here in Southern Ontario, critically important to the water resources in this area. We have two specialty crop areas, iconic areas like the Niagara Tanner Fruit, where we grow grapes and peaches. And it's one of the few places in this country where you can grow that kind of fruit and vegetable. And then there's the economy. Sports about $9.6 billion in separate economic activity, employs about 177,000 people, has about 4,000 farms. And that obviously is a, a lot of the food that many of us eat, right? Yes. And we're increasingly, I think all of us, grateful to have the ability to grow food here in Ontario. Given what we saw during COVID, given what we know about changes in climate and water supply and what we're forecasting across the world in terms of growing conditions and the ability to sustain agriculture. So how have you advised governments over the years? Well, we really start from the perspective of what makes the Green Belt so successful in Ontario has been its permanence. What does that mean? It means people can rely on the fact that the Greenbelt area is permanent. It allows municipalities to understand how they should be planning. It allows farmers to confidently invest in their agricultural opportunities because they know that the agricultural land will be there for the long term. So we start with the idea of permanence being very critical. So let's go back to 2021, 2022. What were the issues for the foundation? Well, perhaps you're referencing the Grow the Green Belt process that yeah. was announced in the last term of the Ford government. And at that time, they were talking about potentially an historic increase in the size of the Green Belt, largest since its creation in 2004-2005. And at that point, they identified that urban river valleys and the connection between headwater systems in places like Gilchrist and Moraine and flowing into Lake Ontario were going to be a focus. That was the goal, was to go out and consult and talk to people about growing the Green Belt with an eye to essentially water systems. Let's talk a little bit about the current controversy. It's a hard topic to avoid. When did you first learn that some of the Green Belt was going to be open for development? We learned it the same day as everyone else. Oh, really? Yeah. What were you thinking when you learned it? What went through your, your head? It came at quite a surprise for us, to be perfectly honest with you. So does that mean that you weren't consulted? Certainly not on what was ultimately released. Should you have been consulted? Well, we'd certainly like to think so. We are the organization that's established to provide advice and support and sustain the Greenbelt and have been for almost 18 years. We would have expected that. We understand why all governments make decisions about who and how they consult. And there had been a large consultation process underway. And the announcement on November the 4th last year was to have a further round of consultation, which is what occurred. And we, amongst many, many others, thousands, in fact, of people provided our best advice. 
And what is that advice? To really go back to the original idea of permanence and long-term goals of the province and to really make decisions about the Greenbelt that respect its underlying systems and their importance to all the things we've talked about and to think about the potential impacts to these kinds of changes. So does that mean no development? There's what we call settlement areas or the areas, towns and villages in the case of the Greenbelt. And they all have the ability to grow within their existing municipal areas. So it's never about no development. If someone from the Ford administration came to you and, and said, look, we're looking at, at opening up development. This is what we want to do. What would your advice have been to that specific proposal? Invest in existing communities. There's an immense amount of land inside of municipalities already. Their own housing affordability task force identified that. This is a group of very expert and experienced people that was appointed by the Ford government to advise on how to improve housing affordability. They were very clear that the Greenbelt is not the basis for an affordability problem in Ontario. And so finally, I'm, I'm wondering if you see this as a bit of a slippery slope. If you open up development now, then who knows what comes down the pipe in the future? That is absolutely a concern, and we've seen it internationally. We really need to avoid what's often described as land swaps and this whole mentality of moving land in one place and putting in one place and taking out somewhere else because the land is not the same no matter where you are. So what are you going to be looking for as this issue continues to unfold over the next weeks and months? What developments are you going to be keeping an eye on? In the sense, we'll be going back to first principles. What are we going to do to make sure we have a strong local food and agricultural system in southern Ontario? What are we going to do to make sure that, especially with climate change, we're protecting our water resources, our rivers, our creeks, and other things that feed into a healthy watershed? And we'll be looking at things like how do we grow in ways that make sure we have recreational areas and green spaces for the growing population in southern Ontario? And finally, how do we protect the critical biodiversity in this area? Thank you very much for this conversation. It's an important one that we'll all be keeping our eyes on. Thank you, David. Phil Pothan is Environmental Defense's Environment Program Manager for Ontario. He's also a lawyer with an expertise in land use planning. We asked him to come on Hot Politics to talk about the impact of building on sensitive protected land. Why is it bad planning to continue with what many critics say is an outdated approach to building homes? And why should the rest of Canada be paying close attention to this controversy playing out in the country's largest metropolitan area? Phil Pothan, welcome. Thank you for having me. I guess we can start with Premier Doug Ford. He wants to build lots of affordable housing. He wants to do some of it on the green belt, says it must be opened. Is he right? No, and he's not right. And I don't accept that those are his intentions at all either. Because the plan that the Premier wants us to swallow is a plan that will see fewer homes overall built and certainly see that those homes which are built are less affordable than they would be otherwise. And especially homes built in places like the Greenbelt are, by design, far more costly to build, far more costly to maintain, and thus much more expensive than it would be to add those same family homes to existing neighborhoods where we already have vast unused capacity. It's much easier, much cheaper if you get rid of the regulatory obstacles to add a family home to an existing low-rise neighborhood in Scarborough, or Etobicoke, or North York, or in Mississauga, 
than it would be to build it on greenfield. The reason the government isn't pursuing that is because, of course, that doesn't enrich those people who have been stockpiling farmland on the outskirts of cities for years. That would spoil their golden ticket. There are environmental concerns about building on Greenbelt, right? Well, sure. But I'm actually going to start with the environmental concern that is least obvious, but just as important as the ones that you're likely to notice. And that is that we actually need those homes. We need more density in existing neighborhoods to make those existing neighborhoods net zero by 2051 or in time to meet our carbon targets, because we just don't have the densities required in existing neighborhoods to support frequent, reliable public transit. We don't have the critical mass of people to support restaurants and shops within walking distance. And this builds in a lot of carbon emissions that we can't keep. So that's number one. But then secondly, the land on the outskirts of areas where there is the greatest demand for housing are also some of the only high quality farmland that we have in Canada. Canada looks huge on the map, but really only a small portion of it. That's our quality farmland. That's the only place where Carolinian species, where many of our species at risk can live. So we can't afford to lose any more of it. And that's not just the green belt. That's what we, also what we call the contested countryside. So when we say we have a vast supply of existing land already designated for development, it looks like farmland now, but it's technically it's urban land. This is a huge issue in Ontario, obviously, for the Ford government, for environmentalists, for groups like yours. But I'm wondering what lessons there are to be learned from this controversy in other parts of the country. Why should the rest of Canada be paying close attention to this controversy? Some parts of Canada are quite different from Ontario. The critical mass that you need in order to have a sustainable community is the same, but the land that you have is not necessarily quite as precious or rare because it's a less rare quality of land. Southern BC has the same problems as Ontario has. Parts of Alberta have the same problems. All of Canada needs to care. Essentially, we are we're kneecapping the future of the GTAH economy. We're kneecapping the country's food security. We're potentially putting ourselves in a situation where we wouldn't even have the capacity to feed ourselves as a country. You know, it's interesting how these battles shape up to protect precious land at a time when the housing crisis in all parts of the country is very real. Yeah, absolutely. There is a real shortage of housing. The government wants to pretend that this is a battle about whether we really need more homes or how much we're willing to sacrifice to get homes built. That's a fake conflict because the folks who are advocating against Greenbelt removals, our concern is that this is actually to get into the Greenbelt, along with everything else, is going to produce fewer homes, not more, where instead of building one home, as would be the case out in the suburbs because of all you have to build, you can build four. You can house four families. At the root of our housing supply crisis, at the root of our affordability crisis, is the fact that new family homes that we're building are inherently more expensive, bigger, they have more roadway for each one of them, we're laying more sewer pipe. And unless we crack that by diverting homes to existing neighborhoods, by the way, which is where three quarters of Southern Ontarians say they want to live is where they won't need a car to get around. Unless we do that, we're not going to deliver the housing that we need. This is not a good faith plan to deliver more housing. 
So this leads me to my next question. Why did Environmental Defence team up with a Democracy Watch to ask the Ontario Provincial Police, the OPP, to investigate the decision to open up the Greenbelt to development? Democracy Watch, they have no dog in the fight over the Greenbelt. They have no special interest in environmental issues. They're interested in anti-corruption. They're interested in the soundness of our democratic institutions. And they're concerned about a very peculiar aspect of this, which is that none of this makes sense from a public interest point of view. But what does seem to be happening is that information that was kept secret from the public, it seems almost certain, somehow leaked to key landowners, real estate investors, who are able to use that information to enrich themselves. That's kind of the narrow focus of the OPP investigation. I'm wondering whether you think that the increasing emphasis on the supposed ethics and who benefits and the premier's friends and whatnot risks obscuring the real concern that environmentalists have, which is the effect that this development could have on the environment. I think Ontarians understand that quite apart from being smelly as hell, the Greenbelt grab, the push to force municipalities to extend their settlement boundaries, the removal of protection for wetlands so that something like 85 to 90% of what are now designated as wetlands will be open for development and available to be paved. All of these things are just horrible, bad faith, dangerous policies. There are some people who suggest that the federal government could step in and stop the Greenbelt build. How could it do that? There is the Rouge Provincial Park. There are federally listed endangered species. Parks staff have said that if that land gets converted to sprawl, it will have catastrophic effects on federal public land. The federal government has jurisdiction over federally listed endangered species. And we know that many listed endangered species and species at risk are in that land, that uh, particularly the Duffins Rouge Agricultural Preserve segment, which is the bulk of the Greenbelt removal. So even if it were never part of the Greenbelt, they'd have to intervene to protect it for other reasons. Do you see Indigenous treaty rights playing a, a big role in this? So, you know, as a rule in environmental defense, we are reluctant to sort of speak for Indigenous nations, you know, they have their own governments and I want to allow them to speak for themselves. But, you know, it seems clear this land shouldn't be built on because there's an outstanding land claim. It's as simple as that. That's our responsibility to await approval from them. Well, this is a very important issue, and not only for the GTA, but I think for many parts of the country, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on it. And Phil Pothen, thank you very much for joining us here in Hot Politics. Thank you for having me. So. Two important issues, the desperation for more housing and the responsibility in a climate crisis to protect green space. Is the green belt really the only option? Well, cities and municipalities in the green belt were not consulted about Doug Ford's decision and were taken by surprise. To get the perspective from two areas, I'm joined by Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward, Burlington is a city of about 200,000. It's west of Toronto and sits on the shore of Lake Ontario. It's next door to Hamilton. And Elaine Baxter Traher is the Chief Administrative Officer of the Regional Municipality of Durham. 
This region of more than 3,000 square kilometers is east of Toronto and stretches from Lake Ontario to Lake Simcoe in the north. Welcome to Hot Politics. Thank you. I want to begin by asking how much of the Greenbelt is in your area. Marianne, you want to start? Well, little known fact about Burlington, we are half rural. Our landmass is half rural. So even though we are classified as a big city in an urban area because of our population, as you mentioned, it's it's almost uh, 200,000. We have a significant amount in uh, the rural area, and that is part of the green belt where you can't develop. It's governed also by the Niagara Escarpment Commission. And previous councils, as well as this council, have taken very strong stands that we will not ask for an urban boundary expansion into our greenbelt and that in fact we do oppose development in the greenbelt. Elaine? In Dura region about 80% of the land of the 2,500 kilometers is uh, rural or remote. Much of it farmland and much of it is within the greenbelt. Council has taken a similar position that they do not support development within the greenbelt and do consider it very important to protect our farmland a major source of food for the province and the country. So Elaine, I want to stick with you. What did you think when you heard that the Greenbelt land would be, or at least some of the Greenbelt land would be open to development? There's no question. We were very surprised. As you had said in your introduction, there was no consultation with the region or with our eight local municipalities or with our various First, First Nations. It presents a number of challenges for us. Uh, the region manages all of the major infrastructure for Durham. Our 10-year plans and plans beyond that obviously included no uh, resources for putting services into the green belt because we had always assumed that they were and would continue to be protected. Marianne? Well, very similar situation in Burlington and the recent decision by the province to open up parts of the Green Belt, uh, thankfully, did not impact Burlington. However, it did open land in Halton and that was a source of a very long um, meeting with many, I think, 60 delegations, almost all of them asking the region not to open the Green Belt because an initial plan and proposal from our staff was to open some parts in Milton and Halton Hills. And uh, I co-sponsored a motion with my colleague, Oakville Mayor Rob Burton, to to change that official plan and not permit any development in the Greenbelt. And the minister's decision overrode that. So they have now opened up Greenbelt in other communities. And, you know, as Elaine said, uh, we all have a stake in this, though, regardless of whether it's in my borders, this feeds us. This is a huge economic engine for the entire region. And in fact, the country. And the same is true in Burlington. We have active agricultural farming uh, communities. They are a key part of our economic plan in the city and and beyond. When any part of the green belt is touched, it really does affect all of us. Elaine, in your news release, you had pointed out that we're talking about $281 million over five years of development fees that would be reduced. That is a lot of money. That's actually the total uh, amount of money that we expect to lose over five years. Our development track revenues are significantly greater than that. It is a lot of money. It's a combination of certain fees no longer being allowed uh, and other charges being phased in. It will cause us considerable tread pressure in terms of uh, servicing the lands and maintaining the infrastructure 
that we already had in our 10-year capital plan. However, we also use development charges for a number of important social benefits, such as support of our affordable housing, childcare facilities. The magnitude of the lost revenue is too significant to put up the, the property tax base, so it's really critical that we find alternative sources of revenue to plug back in. And Marianne, in your news release, you talked about because of this bill, residents, quote unquote, may face higher property taxes and affect the city's ability to provide much needed capital roads, parks, other amenities. Have you been able to put a dollar figure on that yet? So our most recent statement so far is our 2021. We collected about eight, nine million dollars in development charges and other fees and spent close to six in 2021. And so it's not hanging around in reserve funds, you know, uh, and it's not every day that you build a community center or every year. And it's really important to remember that those development charges are collected for more than simply roads and sewers and water and so forth. They are collected for transit and libraries and community centers that are growing community needs. Those would be built within a, a time horizon, but not every year. And so you accumulate those funds until you're in a position and you've earned enough to actually expend. And, and just to give you an order of magnitude, uh, we are refurbishing an old high school into a new community center. And the price tag for that is $75 million. Wow. So you don't collect that in one year and you certainly don't spend that in one year. And that's why the reserves are so critically important to maintain. Uh, and the province knows this, which is why it's a little baffling <laughs> why yeah. they're trying to create this giant hole in our budget and then turn around and say they're going to make us whole. That's to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. They don't have that money either. Elaine, there was something that you are director of of planning said, this is a quote, and, and it really stuck with me. This bill would, would create the most quote unquote, drastic changes to land use planning process that Ontario has seen in decades. This is huge. It is very significant. And we have three Northern municipalities that are very small where the region actually performs much of the planning activity for them. Their question remains, will we be able to do that? The way the legislation currently reads, I don't think so, but we're hoping there's still room for discussion there. The Premier has said that he opened up the green belt because there is an urgent need for housing. What is the situation, the housing situation for you, Marianne? That argument simply is nonsense. Uh, so in Burlington, we have currently 21,000 units under review by our planning staff. The new targets under the most recent legislation that we've been given by the province is 29,000. We will do that and, and more. And where we are accommodating growth is, and this is our uh, new official plan that the council approved in 2020 at three GO stations in Burlington around uh, higher order transit. That's provincial policy to accommodate growth there first. Uh, aging retail plazas. We have several uh, applications to put mixed use developments, high rises on two of our aging plazas, but we've got more. And we've got a few other growth nodes. We don't have to touch established neighborhoods either. And so we are able to accommodate our share of growth, not only within the urban boundary, but really where it should go, which is near higher order transit, major transit uh, system. 
There have been studies that have shown that there's ample land that has been banked that is within the urban area where there, are, in some cases, permits already exist that have not been built. So this idea that there's a land shortage simply does not pass the evidence test. There is not a land shortage. There was no reason to go into the Greenbelt. Elaine? We just completed our lands needs assessment for Durham and added about 9,000 acres uh, to the urban area, none of it from the Greenbelt. And we think that's sufficient for us to see growth through to 2051. We also have four new GO stations that we'll be developing as the GO train east that goes at, extends to Bowmanville. And we've created a transit-oriented development office to ensure that we are really maximizing residential and workspace around those go train stations the view being that that will attract a younger generation a diversity of populations and will really reduce dependency on the car so what are the environmental costs from opening up the green belt you know we share uh, the same ecosystem as all as the entire region the green belt stretches from niagara to well past Pickering and Oshawa to the east, and it is a vital ecosystem. You can't just take a, a piece out of it and think that it won't affect another area. You know, we don't build in floodplains. A good deal of the Greenbelt is on floodplains. And so, you know, anytime we see development happening where it shouldn't, every single one of us should be, we should be speaking out. This is truly what it should be, an environmental issue, and we should be taking a science-based, evidence-based approach to this and that's not what's happening here. It's a very ideological approach based on false data that there is a land crisis. There isn't a land crisis. So what are the financial costs to your areas if you open up the green belt? We talked about development fees, but are there other costs at play here? Developing the green belt is a very costly venture, recognizing that it is on surface. So you have all the water and sewer infrastructure that's required which will also require, in our case, expansion of water treatment plants uh, to support those pipes. You need roads and transit infrastructure, paramedics, stations, police. And as I've mentioned, we all, we, we're really dedicated to holistic communities, so you need a diversity of housing and community benefits. We have been told by the province that these costs will be incurred by the developer. So we are, as I said, in the first one to rule out, we are working uh, with our local partners, the province and the developer to see uh, what the cost magnitude will be and how that is going to be covered going forward. Marianne. Well, whenever you build into a green belt, which by definition is undeveloped, you all of a sudden have to put brand new infrastructure and that is not cheap. You know, because we're not developing in our green belt, uh, and that has not been opened up, we haven't costed that in Burlington, but it is significant. Here's what I don't understand. Marianne, you were pointing this out to me before we started recording this, that in Ontario, there are 444 municipalities, 444 municipalities, and you were mm -hmm. saying almost to an administration, everyone is opposed. So help me understand the politics of this. If you have all of those politicians and, and, and supporting bureaucrats who are opposed to this, how does this happen? Well, that, that is the question of the day. And, you know, AMO, which represents almost all of those municipalities, you have to join uh, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. We are united in our concerns, and that's rural and urban. 
the Ontario Big City Mayors, which represents the 29 largest municipalities, that's over 100,000 population, have also raised concerns. It is a bit baffling to all of us that that, that really united voice raising alarm bells about this has not yet been heeded and slowed this down. Is this a done deal? Well, they haven't brought in the regulations yet. So there's always an opportunity for them to quietly or with fanfare uh, walk back some of the most egregious pieces. My biggest concern is around the changes to the green belt because once that is built, it's really irreversible. You can't unpave a green belt. It's, um, you know, the government has said they want to see or they do see municipalities as partners. So I would urge them to treat us as partners. We're happy to work with the government on solutions that are backed by solid evidence and will deliver. Bill 23 is not that. Marianne Mead Ward and Elaine Baxter Traher, thank you very much for this conversation. It's been uh, fascinating and we'll be watching it closely. Thank you. Thank you very much. Since Doug Ford made his announcement back in November 2022, his decision has been under scrutiny from several directions. Media stories revealed that some developers bought land in the Greenbelt before the announcement, land that at that point could never be built on. Questions were raised about who tipped them off, that there would be a change to the rules, and was this a legal matter that police should investigate? Then it was revealed that developers who would be building the new housing in the Greenbelt attended a fundraising event for Doug Ford's daughter ahead of her wedding, and some even attended the wedding. There were accusations of conflict of interest over the attendance. Ontario's Integrity Commissioner and the Auditor General are now investigating. That's it for Hot Politics Today. Tell us what you think of this episode or the podcast on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. That will make sure people find us. Hot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. The managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. The associate producer is Zara Kozema. Our publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. I'm David Mackay. Next week, it's Maxed Out with Max Fawcett. See you in two weeks. <laughs>